Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. As we begin, we just want to say Happy New Year. This week, we're kicking off the first message in our next mini-series from the Gospel of Matthew we're calling Renew. Pastor Tanner brings us a message as we consider who might be a new Moses. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tanner. Let's pray. We bless you, God, for you are holy. Heaven and earth declare your glory. You alone are worthy to be worshipped. And we give thanks for this day. We give thanks for gathering in a new year. We, uh, we give thanks for what lies behind, challenges and all, and the promise of what lies ahead. But today we anchor ourselves in the present moment, for you are here with us. We bless you for your church. We bless you for Pastor Tim and his birthday. We bless you for this body that is in Christ. Christ Jesus, our Lord, it is to the power of the Holy Spirit we pray these things. Open our hearts and our minds. Amen. So my favorite movie of all time, favorite movie of all time is an old classic. It's called The Born Identity. You've probably heard of it. Um, it's a very old, very old movie. But in that movie, there's this guy. He's the central character. And the whole point of the movie is that he can't remember who he is. He doesn't know what his identity is. He wakes up. He's on a boat in the middle of the ocean. This guy's speaking a language, and he doesn't really understand it. He's not really sure what's going on. But over the course of the movie, he discovers that he's got these skills, these, these skills that only a, a special and very highly trained person would have. And so he spends the entire movie trying to figure out who he is because he believes that once he figures out who he is, everything else is going to fall into place. The problem is, because he doesn't know who he is, his lack of identity causes all sorts of problems for him. It gets him into all kinds of trouble. Not knowing who he is, forgetting his identity, causes problems for him. This is a universal human problem. I can admit, I can confess to you that when I forget who I am, it causes all kinds of problems, right? When my kids don't do what I want as quickly as I want and I yell at them, I have forgotten who I am. I have made myself the center of the story. I've disregarded their identity I've forgotten who I am and it causes problems. When my, when my wife doesn't understand me the way I want to be understood and I decide that I'm going to, you know, walk away or, you know, give the cold shoulder or whatever, I've forgotten who I am, I've disregarded who she is and it causes all kinds of problems. When one of my colleagues does something that annoys me, very rarely happens, but when it happens and I go and I start talking to somebody else about them, that's called gossip, by the way. I've forgotten who I am. I've forgotten who they are. And that identity crisis causes all kinds of problems. It's a universal human affliction to forget who we are. 
And the gospel message of Jesus is laser-focused on that problem. Laser-focused on helping us to remember who we are. The gospel is a reminder of who we are and then an invitation to live from that center. This morning, we're going to take a look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of Jesus and his temptations in the wilderness. It comes in Matthew chapter 4. We'll get there in a moment. But But in that story, Jesus faces temptations, and it is because he remembers his core identity, his true self, that he is able to weather those tests. This morning, we're going to take a look at that, that story, and we're going to draw from it some some instruction for how we might live more fully from the center, the true center of our true selves. Now, like I said, that story comes from, this, comes from the book of Matthew, but before we dig into the story, I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Matthew because we're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew over the next several months. So it's kind of good to understand what Matthew's agenda is, and he does have one. Matthew is, uh, is writing his gospel story, his story of Jesus, to a bunch of religious people. Uh, What I mean by religious people is these are people who took their faith very seriously and who were very familiar with their Bible. Their Bible is what you and I would refer to as the the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible. But they, they knew their Bible really, really well. And so Matthew is writing to these people and he wants his audience to understand that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised, prophesied about in their Bible, in the Old Testament. He wants them to know that that Jesus is the one that they've all been waiting for. He wants them to understand that what he's doing, he's not telling a new story. He's, He's telling a continuation of the story that they've already been living, the story that God has been telling through the Jewish people for thousands of years. Jesus is just the, the next chapter in what God is doing. He wants them to know that Jesus isn't plan B. Jesus was always plan A. He was always the point of the story. And so he he subtly refers to all kinds of things that religious people would understand. And some of that stuff is lost on us because our minds are shaped by so many other things, but their minds were primarily shaped by the stories of the Old Testament. So, So for instance, in the first few chapters of Matthew, Jesus wants us to make a connection, some parallels between Jesus and Moses. Moses, who's in the Jewish Hall of Fame, he's the one who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and and into the wilderness, right? So Moses is this incredible uh, character in, in the pantheon of heroes of the Jewish faith. And Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is in that same line, that there's a lot of parallels. For instance, Matthew tells us that Jesus was born during a time when there was a king who wanted to kill all the little boys, just like Moses, right? Uh, Both Moses and Jesus have an escape that involves Egypt. Uh, Jesus' parents take him to Egypt, but Moses escapes from Egypt. Both stories have this important moment that involves water. Moses famously parts the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized and comes up out out uh, out of the river, Moses led 12 tribes. Jesus leads 12 disciples, right? Moses gives, uh, through, through Moses, God gives the people the law, the 12 commandments, the, the law, 
on Mount Sinai, Jesus gives a new law, a new commandment through the Sermon on the Mount. Moses spent 40 years in the desert wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert wilderness. So you, you get it, right? There's this connection. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus isn't some new idea, that Jesus was always the plan. There was, Jesus is not plan B. Jesus has always been the point. And everything that has happened up until this point has been pointing towards his arrival, all right? So you gotta keep that in mind as you read the Gospel of Matthew, sort of locate yourself in the audience that Matthew was talking to. All right, one more thing before we get to Matthew chapter four. In order to understand the story of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew four, you have to back up one chapter to Matthew chapter three. That's the story of Jesus's baptism. The reason that you have to look at the story of Jesus's baptism is, it, is that it's because in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is reminded of the center of his identity, and it's from the center of his identity that he will have to face the tests in the wilderness. I think it'll make a little more sense as we go through it. So take a look at this. Matthew chapter 3 Verses 16 through 17, the baptism of Jesus. Here's what happens. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So the Holy Spirit is visibly present in some way on Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit on him and in him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. At some point, every human being wrestles with three really big questions about identity. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what do I have to do to be accepted? If you've ever met a tween or teenager, these are the core questions that they're wrestling with, which often is why it's so difficult for you to understand them. <laughs> because everything inside of them is striving to figure out who they are, where they belong, and what they have to do to be loved what they have to do to be accepted. And, and while those questions get resolved in some way during our teen, our late teen and early adult years, those questions continue to carry with us throughout the rest of our lives. We're always wrestling with these core identity questions in some way, shape, or form. These are the questions of identity. And in his baptism, Jesus has these three questions definitively answered. Who am I? Jesus is God's son, right? Meaning that he has been sent by the Father with the Father's authority and with the Holy Spirit's power. God's son isn't just a title like mayor or president. God's son is an identity that comes with authority and responsibility. Second, where do I belong? Well, we find that Jesus is loved by God meaning that God has committed himself to a self-sacrificial love, a self-sacrificial action for the sake of Jesus, 
his son. Jesus' place, where does he belong? His place is in God's family, and his place in God's family is permanent. It's not conditional. It won't ever change. Where do I belong? Third, what do I have to do to be accepted? Well, the last thing that God says is that he is pleased with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to do anything to make God more happy or to prove his worth. God already considers Jesus worthy. Jesus' very existence is pleasing to God. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what do I have to do to be accepted? Now, how you answer these three questions will determine how you answer the core question of faith. This is the core question of faith. Can God be trusted? A lot of times we think that the core question of faith is one of theism or atheism or agnosticism. Does God exist? Or can we know whether or not God exists? I contend that that's not the core question of faith because if God exists but God is not trustworthy, then who cares if God exists? The real question is, can I trust God? Is God trustworthy? And how you answer those first three questions, who am I, where do I belong, and how do I become accepted? How you answer those questions is going to shape how you answer this fourth question, can God be trusted? So, that question is at the, is at the heart of the story we're going to read today about Jesus in the wilderness. Let's look at that story now. It's in Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin with verse 1 if you want to follow along. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Matthew 4, chapter 1, or Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 starts like this. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. The Spirit comes down. God speaks to him. Immediately, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tested. He is being led by the Spirit into the desert to have his identity that was just proclaimed from a voice from heaven. He's going to have his identity tested. That's what's happening. So into the wilderness they go. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God. That's kind of an interesting way to phrase that temptation, isn't it? Because the, the tempter, the accuser, the devil, what he's doing is not asking Jesus to perform a magic trick. What he's doing is trying to call Jesus's identity into question. Who are you really? Where do you really belong? Don't you think you have to do something to really be accepted? If you are who God says you are, if your identity is truly who you think it is, why don't you prove it? Why don't you prove it? Can you really trust God? Don't you think you need to prove it in some way? That question, can God be trusted, is at the heart of this conversation between the tempter and Jesus. It's also at the heart of the struggle of Israel and their wandering in the desert. They had to choose to trust God every single day in the desert. 
They had to trust, choose to trust God every single morning that food would come. Remember in Exodus chapter 15, they're wandering in the desert. They're really hungry and they cry out to God. And so God says, I've, I've got a plan. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you'll see what I'm going to do. So they wake up the next morning and what happens? There's this bread, this sort of flaky, crusty stuff all over the stones scattered around, right? And they get up and they're supposed to collect enough for that day. Enough bread for the day, daily bread. And so they go, they collect bread for the day and they eat it. But if they try to save some for tomorrow, does anybody remember what happens? It rots. I don't let my kids waste food. I don't know about you. Why does that happen? Because God wants them to wake up the next morning and face the same question. Do you still trust me? Do you still believe I can be trusted? So every morning they wake up and every morning they collect food and every morning the food that they collect comes from the hand of God. God, can you be trusted for my daily bread? So that's the first temptation, right? The first temptation of Jesus is to turn stones into bread. And the first temptation is not about whether or not Jesus can do magic on rocks. It's not a magic trick. The first temptation is the temptation to become self-reliant. The temptation to become self-reliant, to rely on yourself because who knows whether or not God can really be trusted. And all of this isn't lost on Jesus. He knows what the devil is up to. His reply comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is God trustworthy? Jesus says, yes. So the, the temptations continue. The devil took Jesus to a holy, the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, there he goes, using that same line again. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is once again... Uh, the devil, the tempter, calling into question whether or not God is trustworthy. If you really believe God is trustworthy, why don't you do something to force God to prove it? <laughs> why don't you jump off of this temple just to, you know, just to show everybody that you really are who you think you are? This is the test, the temptation to be spectacular, to make a spectacle of yourself not just to be self-reliant. The second temptation is the temptation to be self-centered. To make sure that you are the center of everyone's attention. Because you don't believe enough in your identity. You need other people to confirm it for you. Again, Jesus responds with words from the book of Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus doesn't have to be the center of attention because God is the center of his attention and he knows who he is, that he really is who God says that he is. 
And then there's one more temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Now, this temptation, I think, is, is maybe the most difficult. I, I don't know. But I, I believe that Jesus knew the path he had been born to walk. I believe that Jesus knew, because he talks about it over and over again before his death, that his path was one where he would be arrested and tortured and murdered. I believe that he knew that in order to come to his place, for his kingdom to come and to come into his place of glory, he would first have to go through great suffering. He would have to make himself absolutely vulnerable, totally naked. That he would have to submit himself to all kinds of the worst of humanity. He knew that that was a part of the plan, that that was coming. And what the devil is offering here, him, him here is a shortcut you can be in charge. You can be important. Everyone will serve you. You can be at the center. I'll give all of this to you, and you don't even have to go to the cross. All you have to do, all you have to do is worship me. That's tempting. Temptation to take a shortcut. The last temptation is not about wealth. It's about power and control without having to be vulnerable, without having to put yourself at risk, without having to suffer. This is the temptation of self-importance. Not just the temptation to serve yourself, but to force others to serve you too. And Jesus again replies from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says, I know who I am. I know that I am the Son of God, so I refuse to worship myself. Instead, I humble myself and I worship the Father because the Father is the only one who deserves to be worshiped. Three temptations, the temptation of self-reliance, the temptation of self-centeredness, the temptation of self-importance. Jesus isn't leading Israelites out of slavery in Egypt like Moses. Instead, he's leading humanity out of the slavery of our identity crisis, out of the slavery where we rely on ourselves, only think about ourselves, and where we worship ourselves, and into the freedom where we can increasingly rely on God, increasingly think about the well-being of others, and increasingly worship God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind and our whole strength. See, changing, changing who you think you are will change the way that you live your life. Let me say that again. Changing who you think you are will change the way that you live your life. It'll change the way that you spend your money and your time, the way that you have conversations with the people you love and with the people who frustrate you, even with the people who you might consider to be your enemies. 
changing who you think you are will change how you act, how you live your life, the decisions that you make, what you prioritize. And that's what Jesus is after. Not just that we might think of ourselves differently, but that we might then be able to live differently. Not that we would just take on Jesus' identity as a name, but that we would be able to take on Jesus' identity as a way of being. Author Brennan Manning uh, says it this way in a beautiful book called Abba's Child. If you haven't read Abba's Child, it's well worth your time. He writes, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. When I am off track, it is because I have forgotten who I am. I've decided to rely on myself to make myself the center of the story and to consider myself more important than other people. And while it might scratch an itch for that tiny identity in the moment, it always leads to worse things. I always feel worse when I forget who I am because my true self is the one who is radically beloved by God. And when I lean in to that identity, that identity is big enough that it can be filled up with the character of Christ. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things are too big to be contained within the small tanner, the little tanner who is self-absorbed and self-important and self-centered and self-reliant. That little tanner can't contain the character of Christ, but the character of Christ, the identity of Christ, can, it's big enough for me to contain all those things, to have those things grow inside of me. That's how transformation happens. It doesn't happen by trying harder or by fixing myself. It first comes from radical acceptance that I actually am God's beloved, finding my security in that love, and then opening up myself to transformation through the Holy Spirit. Next week, Pastor Tim is going to talk about discipleship. That's all discipleship is. It's growing into the image of Christ. And, and the early church were so captivated by this idea of identity that, they, that it shows up in all of these early letters. So the rest of the New Testament, you have the Gospels at the beginning, and pretty much the rest of it is letters written by pastors to their churches. And these letters that like the Apostle Paul, for instance, wrote are just chock full of references to our new identity in Christ. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if your identity is in Christ, that's how you identify yourself, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Your past is in the past. You are a new creation in Christ. It's not just a fact about you, it is at the core of your identity. It is who you are. Or this one from Ephesians chapter one. 
In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Your sins have been forgiven. Your record is clean. If you're like me, there are things in your past that you have done that you just cannot forget. People that you have hurt, times when you've been selfish, mean words that you've said that hang over you like a cloud. Those things, they, they hunt you down. You think you've gotten over it and then it's 3 a.m. and you're rolling over them in your head. Anybody else have that? But in Christ, in Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences for the things that we've done, but when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as the person that you sometimes feel you are. Or this one from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. Oh, but there's another part. Not only are you not condemned, but that person you really don't like, they're not condemned either. So because you're not condemned, we don't, you and I, we don't get to condemn others. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or this one from a little bit later in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more from Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You are God's child and you will always be God's child. In Christ, we find our deepest and truest self the true core of our identity. But this isn't just about thinking about yourself in a different way. When we find our identity in Christ, we also find the freedom to grow in the character of Christ. In Christ, we find the courage and the strength to face the temptations of the desert, which are temptations that are common to all of us the temptation to rely on myself, the temptation to put myself at the center, the temptation to make myself more important than everyone else. Henry Nouwen writes it this way. He says, every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, which I've felt all three of those, I'm sure, in the last 24 hours. <laughs> every time you feel hurt, offended or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting love. In our household, we often say, you're having big feelings right now, and it's okay to have big feelings, but we don't have to do what they tell us to do. I tell my kids that, but I really tell them that so that I can remember. <laughs> These feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. Friends, our world is chock full of messages about your identity that are too small to contain the character of Christ. 
Too many messages in our society tell us that we are how we vote. How did that happen? How did, how did our politics become our primary lens for seeing one another? No, in Christ you are a new creation. And it's not that politics aren't important. They're just not primary. I mean, there are, there are so many different... Our economic status is the primary lens for a lot of us. Our gender or our sexuality or our nationality or where we were born or what our last name is, or what kind of car we drive. These all, all these things, they can become these primary ways of seeing ourselves. And they're just not big enough selves to contain the character of Christ. And you, maybe you don't feel like it every day, but you were meant, you were meant to take on the character of Christ. One of my other favorite authors, Ronald Rollheiser, he writes, when we act like God, we get to feel like God feels. In other words, when you, when you act like Christ, you get to feel Christ-like. And that's what you and I were called for, were, were created for. That's what we're meant for, to take on the character of Christ because we have the identity of Christ. You are in Christ. So faith is holding on to that true identity even when we don't feel like it or feel that it's true, even when we're tempted and tested to rely on ourselves and to make ourselves the center and to make ourselves more important than others, choosing to live as though God is ultimately trustworthy, which is way easier said than done. So, in closing, let me offer you three, three simple practices that can help you take a step to embrace this in Christ identity, right? And I think, I think they're applicable for everybody. Wherever you are in the journey of your in Christ identity, I think it's applicable. The first one, pray acknowledging where it's hard for you to trust God. Right? Pray something like, God, show me the places in my life where it is hard for me to trust you. It could be with your money or with your family or with your friendships or with your future. Um, I know that for me, it, I, it often comes with my kids and um, trusting God for their futures and for their safety. So whatever it is, ask God to reveal to you the places where it's the hardest for you to believe that he is trustworthy. Show me where it is difficult for me to trust you. You might even pray this ancient prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is offense, any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me and know me and reveal myself to me. I don't know myself sometimes. I don't feel like these things are true sometimes. God, show me where I have a hard time trusting you. Bring it to the fore. We call that confession, and it's the first step in the Christian journey. God, show me. Second, after you've spent some time there, second, ask God to show you that he is trustworthy in that specific area of your life. Pretty simple. God, would you please show me that I can trust you with my money? 
Would you please show me that I can trust you with my kids, with my parents, with my work, with my future? Can you please show me that I can trust you? Because I'm having a hard time right now. That's, that's not testing God. That's asking God to help you to have a secure attachment, a secure relationship with him. God, I believe that you are trustworthy and I'm asking you to help me believe it even more, <laughs> to take a step towards your trustworthiness. Now, third, and finally, ask God to show you a person, a trustworthy person who you can talk to about this and who would be willing to walk this path of trust in your life. This is not something that I've ever been able to do on my own. There are so many of you in this room and others in my life who have to remind me of my in Christ identity over and over and over again, who need to remind me that I am forgiven, who need to remind me that I'm a new creation, who need to remind me that no matter what, I can never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We need each other. It's why Paul calls the, the church the body of Christ. We cannot do this without one another. So find a person, ask God to show you a person who you can talk to about your journey towards trusting God even more, even in the difficult places of your life. Remember that faith is about rooting our life in Christ, embracing his will and his way as our own, being filled up with the character of Christ. That's my prayer for you and for me this morning. May you find that in Christ, God is trustworthy. Let's pray. We pray this morning in Christ. We pray, God, that you would reveal to us the places where trust is hard. We pray that you would show us how you are trustworthy in those places. We pray that you would lead us to people who love us and love you and can help us walk the path of trust, the path back to our true selves. We ask you to open us up to our in Christ identity in our relationship with others, in our conversations, and how we use our money and our time in the decisions that we make, God that our in-Christ identity might be our primary identity. And that in embracing our identity in you, we might be filled with your character. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.